ask that you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Nahum, book of Nahum, little small prophet in the Old Testament. I'll give you a chance to get there. Just three chapters long, uh, stuck between Micah and Habakkuk, if if you're looking for it. But while you're looking for the book of Nahum, I'll just give you a little background because for the next uh, few messages that I preach, I'm going to be preaching from this little book. It is the sequel to the book of Jonah. It's really a companion book. It's not as well known as Jonah. Uh, Jonah preached to Nineveh in Bible scholars say around 790 to 760 B.C. approximately, somewhere in that time, he preached against their sins. He prophesied against them. And the good news in the book of Jonah is that Nineveh repented of their sins after the preaching of Jonah. Well, Nahum's prophecy occurs about 130 to 150 years later, somewhere between 660, 630 B.C. Like Jonah, he comes preaching against them. But unlike the time of Jonah, Nineveh does not repent this time. And judgment is coming. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the great Assyrian Empire. Assyria, not to be confused with Syria, uh, two different nations. The Assyrian Empire's heart was in The heart of it was in what we now call modern-day Iraq. That's where Nineveh was located, was still located there. The ruins of it is outside of Mosul, Nineveh Plains. Uh, Archaeologists still go there. Uh, So the heart of this great empire was in modern-day Iraq. Nineveh was the great capital of it, much like Washington is the capital of the United States, Moscow, Russia. And... Nahum prophesies against it. And before we read uh, our scriptures, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Feed us from your word today. Lord, draw us to you. And where there's sin in our life, convict us that we may repent And I especially lift up to you, Lord God, any here today or who may be watching on Facebook who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they may turn from their sins and believe upon Christ. And help me, your unworthy servant, as I read and preach your word today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to look at the first eight verses of Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of His feet. 
he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languishes and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Uh, Nahum begins his prophecy here by stating the burden of Nineveh or the burden against Nineveh. It, the prophecy, as I said earlier, is against Nineveh because of her sins that she has committed this great city. And in these first eight verses, there's one verse that stands out uh, that that really stands out in these eight verses, and that's verse 7. Really, it's one phrase that stands out to me, and that is, the Lord is good. As we see this prophecy where Nahum talks about the coming, how God's wrath is, is great, He judgeth evil, and of His great power, He says in all of this, the Lord is good. He's good. That term good means that he's morally good. He's not evil. And I want to entitle this message today, The Lord is Good. First of all, the Lord is good when showing his wrath on the wicked. He is good in showing his wrath on the wicked. Uh, when God pours out His judgment on the wicked, my friends, we can say God is good. What He is doing is just. Why? Because God's wrath and His judgment are tied into His holiness. Now, the wrath of man doesn't work the, the good of God. Our wrath, unless it's for something holy when we get angry, but it, it is not good. Usually ours is tied in with us losing our temper. And it's, we've lost control. We're mad. It's, it's, it's a work of the flesh. But God's wrath is not a work of the flesh. It is, a, it is tied into His holiness. That He is holy. He is pure. And that man's sin is an insult to God's purity. His holiness. Notice in verse 2. God is jealous. Now, when we talk about jealousy, uh, when with humans, that's generally we're it's a fleshly, it's a fleshly attitude that somebody's getting more attention than we are, somebody's making more money than I am, and I'm jealous of them. But God's jealousy is not the same as that of humans. God is jealous over His holiness, over His worship. You could also say He is jealous for His people. Israel, who Nineveh and Assyria had been a great enemy of and who had persecuted them. At this time of this 
writing of this prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel was no more. Only the southern kingdom called Judah, where Jerusalem existed, was the only one that existed. So a good portion of God's chosen people had been carried off. And they were still a thorn in Judah and Jerusalem's side. God is jealous in regard to His worship and His honor, and He's jealous when it comes to His people also. Look, all humans owe God worship. Everybody owes God. He is our Creator. He, we all exist because of Him. And Assyria, this great nation, this great superpower, which they were of their day, was a nation of idol worshipers, of many gods. And they had no regard for the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. But God only is good. And He alone deserves worship. Continuing in verse 2, Nahum states some... Notice these words that he uses. The, the, uh, some, some of this repetition. The Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth. Is furious. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He reserveth wrath for His enemies. Uh, people today will argue, well, now that was you know, God in the Old Testament. You know, that's not God today. You remember uh, Tim Tebow, uh, he, he, when he, he was quarterback of the Florida Gators and was a very outspoken Christian, still is a very outspoken Christian. Uh, but uh, somebody was asking his famous coach, Steve Spurrier, about him. And, of course, Spurrier, you know, bragged on his uh, star quarterback, Tim Tebow, but he, he joked, but you know, I'm kind of not, he's kind of a New Testament, I'm kind of an Old Testament guy, you know, bringing down the wrath, is what Spurrier said. Well, see, he had the same misconception a lot of Christians today have, that in the Old Testament, God was full of wrath, and then we get the New Testament, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of lightened up a little bit. He's not quite the same. You know, we've sanitized God this way today, that, you know, God loves you and He loves you just the way you are. That's how uh, many people say it about God. You may have heard that statement. But does the New Testament say that? Let's look at the New Testament since many people say that what we're reading here is not the God we read of that Jesus spoke of or that uh, we read of in the New Testament. Well, let's go to John 3.16. Let's go to John 3.16 and see... And I. And I know probably a good many of us know this verse by heart. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, if you'll notice here, God so loved the world, yes, that He gave His only begotten Son. But no, look here, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. The implication is those who do not believe in Him will perish. Go to verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And in verse 18, He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here we read in John, just two verses after John 3.16, He that believeth not is condemned. When? Already. Already. Not on the day of judgment. We will be on the day of judgment, face the hell itself. But even now, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not trusting in Christ, the Bible says you're already under condemnation. It's not a matter of you're in, in a neutral position having to choose between God and the devil. No. The Bible already shows you on the devil's side. You must believe in Christ to get out of condemnation. Go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Verses 5 and 6. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul states, And after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Paul says that judgment is being reserved for those who are outside of Christ even now. It's reserved for those who continue to remain in their sins. As, going back to Nahum, he reserveth wrath for his enemies. And for those outside of Christ, you are an enemy of him. For you have not come to Christ. Uh, turn from your sins. Believe upon him as Lord and Savior, my friends. Now for us Christians, this is also a reminder when we read of God's wrath, of His judgment, that there is wrath upon unbelievers. There is wrath for those who will not come to Christ. And there's wrath coming on those who persecute us. But remember Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where Paul reminds us, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Don't seek revenge. We're not, we're not God, and we're not the one who executes judgment. God will do that on, on those who persecute the church, who are outside of Christ. Look, God is good. His wrath is good, for it comes from His holiness in reality, folks, all of us, every human being deserves His wrath if not for the cross. That's why we, we who are Christians, we're, look, we don't have nothing to brag on. We have to only to look to Christ and brag on Him. Then we see here when you get to verse 3, Nahum reminds us the Lord is slow to anger. Amen. Thank God he's slow to anger. Look, God could have destroyed this great city of Nineveh 130 or 150 years before this prophecy during the time of Jonah. Jonah came preaching that message. God sent him. And we'll see here in a little bit, Jonah had hoped God would destroy him. He did hope they would destroy him. 
But then you go, let's go to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Book of Jonah, chapter 3, and verse 10. God had, you know, and, uh, God had spoken through uh, Jonah that judgment was coming upon them. Uh, he 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 he, cried, he preached judgment that in forty days Nineveh shall be overthrown. He said in verse four of Jonah three. But then they repented, and what does verse ten state? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he that that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. God showed mercy upon Nineveh back in the time of Jonah. He was patient. Now we're in the time of Nahum. And they have returned to their sin. And despite God's anger toward them, Nahum states, the Lord is slow to anger. God's not a hothead. He's not like some people you may run into who have got a short fuse. That's not God. God is merciful, my friends. Not quick to temper. Not quick to temper. Ready to forgive. And this term that He uses is very common in the Old Testament. I could give verse after verse, but I, would, I want to just show you a few of these verses that state this. First of all, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 103 and verse 8, David states, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. David states, The Lord's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's plenteous, or he's, he's got plentiful mercy. He's, he's just full of mercy. That's good to know. For some people may feel, you know, I've, you know, I've gone too far away. I can't, God can't forgive me. Oh, yes, he can forgive you. He's full of mercy. Psalm 145, verse 8. Psalm 145, in verse 8. Very similar. The psalmist here states, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. God is good in that He is slow to anger. He, is, he shows mercy to the unbelievers, to those who repent. He's even showing mercy really to Nineveh, in that he had not brought his judgment on them quicker. And then let's go again to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. And Jonah, the prophet Jonah, was, uh, well, what you read here in Jonah 4 too, he was very displeased with the results of his but prophecy, uh, unlike most evangelists who would be happy, he was not happy they repented. Uh, he was hoping God's judgment would come upon Nineveh. 
And and we even find out why he ran. You know the story of Jonah. He ran from God in doing this, and God had him swallowed by a great fish, and he repented and came and preached. But in chapter four, verse two, well, you read verse one. When uh, let's read verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly that he was very angry. He was very angry that Nineveh repented, and he prayed in the Lord and said, "I pray thee, O Lord." Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness and repentance. That word repentance means turn thee of the evil. Jonah said, The reason, Lord, I ran in the first place and didn't want to come here and preach was because I knew how merciful you are. And that you're slow to anger. And sure enough, what happens? These people repent and turn to you. Jonah knew that God was merciful. Though he was proclaiming in 40 days Nineveh would be overthrown, Jonah also knew God was merciful. God is good in being slow to anger. And I'm thankful He has because just think about it, folks. If you treated most people the way you treat God. And I'm talking to us who are believers. We wouldn't have any friends. Because the way we treat God, we disobey His His Word, we do our own thing, we act like He don't exist or He don't see our sins. And the way we act, thank God He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger to His children and He's slow to anger to those who are outside of Christ. If you're here today and not saved, I just ask you, what are you waiting for? God is showing patience to you. He has shown patience to you. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners and arose three days later to make us right with God. Turn to Him. For He is good, my friends. God is good, willing to forgive. And then the rest of verse 3, after he says the Lord is slow to anger, the rest of verse 3 really to uh, to verse 5, he describes God's great power here. He's great in power. He will not acquit the wicked. He will not acquit the wicked. He, while God is gracious and merciful, He will not acquit the unrepentant. He is patient. But as Jesus said in Luke 13, verse 3, except ye repent, ye will perish. Ye will perish. And, and then He describes God's power in nature. Uh, he says his, his way is in the whirlwind. That word whirlwind means strong winds, gale force winds. It'll soon be two years, about, about a couple more weeks, or less than two weeks, or almost two weeks, when Ida came through here. And probably the vast majority of us were, in, were here and we can testify of the gale force winds came with it. It came that night. 
when your house or your apartment was shaking. In my case, two trees falling down and hearing trees fall down, hearing power lines collapse. That was powerful. It wasn't Mother Nature, my friends. You'll hear Mother Nature. No, there is no Mother Nature. That's the power of Almighty God. It's being shown. When I hear people say, God don't have nothing to do with that, my friends, yes, He does. God is sovereign over all things, even storms. And it, as he states here, in the whirlwind, the storm. Notice the clouds are like dust under his feet. That just shows you the magnificence of God. Even the clouds you see are just, they're like dust to Almighty God. He, he, he rebuketh the sea. He maketh it dry. Even the mighty Atlantic and Pacific Ocean are nothing to him. He drieth up all the rivers. Last year at this time, last summer, made headlines when the Mississippi River, that great mighty river, was drying up. People were able to find things, you know, walk out in parts of the river and find coins or see things never seen before because this mighty river, the mighty Mississippi River, was dried up. That's a witness of the power of God, my friends. His power. Nahum says, Bashan languishes. Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languishes. That is, it withers. These were uh, lush, fertile areas that God, he says God can turn them into a desert just like that. God is powerful. He's all-powerful. Even the mountains quake, he states. The hills melt and the earth and the entire world at His presence. This is the mighty, awesome power of God that we see in nature. I know people don't... You, there was... Uh, when Ida hit two years ago, I was listening to the radio because everything else was out and I was trying to get some news and it was some... Uh, so-called Christian leader in New Orleans was saying, you know, God doesn't have nothing to do with this. You know, well, that's scarier, by the way, than saying God does have something to do with it. I know what he's trying to do, saying God's not bringing his wrath down on Louisiana. I don't know, you know, look, I'm not, I don't have the mind of God, but I do know God has something to do with it. God is sovereign. He has control over it. Uh, why pray if God's not sovereign, my friends? Yes, He's completely sovereign over all these things. And then, this leads to this question in verse 6. Well, it's actually it's two questions that He asks. Who can stand before His indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? And he describes his fury as like fire. The rocks are thrown down by him. Who can stand before him? Who can abide? And this reminds me of a question that was asked in the book of Revelation chapter 6. Very similar. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 6. Beginning in verse 12, 
where John wrote, And I beheld, and when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell upon unto the earth, even as fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rock of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And the answer to that is no one. No one can stand against the wrath of God. No one. I had a friend of mine who's an unbeliever tell me, says, I've, I'll tell you what, when I, after I die and stand before God, I'm going to have some questions before to Him. And I said, no, you're not. Let me, let me tell you, you're not going to que- interrogate Almighty God. Uh, you know, if you were to look at Revelation chapter 1, when John the Apostle, who had walked with Jesus in his personal ministry, called the disciple that you know Jesus loved. He was very close to Jesus. But in Revelation 1, when he saw the resurrected and glorified Christ, what does it say? He fell at his feet as dead. Yeah. And Jesus says, fear not. Even John, though he knew Jesus in his personal ministry, when he saw him, even he quaked. My friends... You're not going to run to Jesus to hug Him when you see Him someday. You're going to fall at His, at his feet for you'll realize He's God. Uh, he is God. And unbelievers, you're not going to have no questions for God. You'll be so terrified. In all of this, we're reminded, however, again in verse 7, the Lord is good. The Lord's good in all of this. And, and then we're told, uh, Nahum states, Nahum, he's good, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. He's a stronghold. God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He's a stronghold on the day of judgment. He's a stronghold throughout your life. That's why if, you are, if you're outside Christ, if you have not believed upon him, Turn from your wicked ways and turn to Him. He's the only stronghold in this life. Turn to Him. He's he's the only salvation there is. There's no name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. And I love that term, uh, term, He knoweth them that trust in Him. This is very similar to Romans 8, where God foreknoweth, us, it, it doesn't mean He just knows you. It means He knows you intimately. That you are His child. That you are His beloved. And then in verse 8, a final warning today as we close, getting ready to close. 
and over, but with an overrunning flood, he'll make an end of the place thereof. And darkness shall pursue his enemies. God is patient, my friends. He's patient with unbelievers. He was patient with Nineveh. And if you're here today and don't know Christ, He's patient with you. But don't take it for granted. Don't take God for granted. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. I know if you don't know Christ today, if you want to talk to somebody, there's Brother Jimmy, myself, and there's other men in here, would gladly talk to you about Christ. For he, for, uh, he is your only hope and your salvation. And I want to close out today from 2 Peter 2.9. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 where Peter states, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The Lord knows how to deliver us, His children, those who believe upon Him, out of temptation, out of all troubles. On the other hand, He reserves the unjust to a day of punishment. If you don't know Christ, what are you waiting for, my friends? Believe upon Him today. Turn to Him. And I pray that the Lord will turn your heart and change your heart to believe today. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we come to You today saying that You are good. You're good, Lord, because You are holy and righteous. And apart from You, we're wicked and vile, Lord. Even we who are Your saints, we can only enter heaven through Your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, took, taking our sins upon Himself and imputing unto us His righteousness. Oh, praise be to You. For those who may be watching, whether here or on Facebook, I ask that You convict them of their sins, O oh Lord God. That You have mercy, Lord, for You are merciful. That You will turn them from their sins and that they may believe upon You today. All praise and glory belongs to You, O God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.